You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. I had this weird experience this past week where um, I woke up uh, Monday mornings. I have a little bit of a sleep in. Renee is very gracious to me. She takes care of the kids, gets them to school. I have a little sleep in. And then when I woke up, I found I had a message, and it was short message, all caps, which normally means it's from my dad, which it was, all caps, why, 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 why am I here? Why am I here? I don't want to be here anymore. I was like, what, what? My, like, I, I started freaking out immediately. I'm like, my dad has lost his mind. He's finally cracked. And this, is this a cry for help? Like, so I quickly tapped out a message, like, please explain. Now, what I didn't realize is that Along with the message, he had sent a picture, and the picture was just him at work with all the work he had to do for the day. But my phone, which is not a smartphone, because the picture was more than like a megabyte, I couldn't get the picture, and so therefore, I thought he had written some kind of suicide note. And here's the point. If you don't have the whole picture, it's very easy to misunderstand the message, right? And so what I want us to know as we open up this great book of Exodus is that if we lack the whole picture of God's revealed word to us, if we lack the picture of his gracious acts in salvation history, if we can't get our heads around the big idea, then we'll fail to get the message of Exodus. And so this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, how we kind of frame up the big story of the Bible. And if you've been here for any length of time, you've probably heard us talk about the kind of four parts of God's Word. And so these are the four, four parts here. The Bible moves from creation to fall to redemption to restoration. So beginning with creation, this is what we see. We see that God pre-exists everything that there is. When there was nothing except God, God was there, and he didn't create everything because he was lacking something. He wasn't lonely. He didn't need some friends, right? He he wasn't bored. He was existing in perfect, self-sufficient harmony with himself. And then creation is like, it's like the overflow of his glory onto the canvas of creation. And like like a brilliant artist, he paints into existence everything that there is. And at the pinnacle of that creation is man and woman. He makes everything and says that it's good, and he makes men and women, Adam and Eve, and he says it's very good. And if we had have been there with them, I feel like we would have been tempted to, we would have been tempted to worship creation. Because creation in perfection, the overflow of God's beauty would just be overwhelming for us. Yesterday, I spent some time out at um, Lerdeberg Gorge, got a little me time, and uh, it was the first time, we've been living here nearly six years, it was the first time I've ever seen that place with water in it, right, in the Lerdeberg River. And so I got there, and where there used to be, normally is just this oil slick of, like, algae, there was the most brilliant, crystal clear, water in the river, and I just sat on this rock over the river and just basked in both the winter sun and the glory of God, and I, 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 didn't, I didn't consciously start praising God, but I praise God for that beauty. 
him revealing himself in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. And that is because God created this world to be majestic. Oh, and here's the thing. This is what I love, right? This is what I love about what he says about Adam and Eve in that perfect creation. He says in Genesis 2, uh, 25, he says, Adam and his wife, Eve, were both naked and they felt no shame. That's a beautiful picture of the intimacy of God's creation before anything goes wrong. A man and his wife, naked and not ashamed. Don't, if you're a man, you're probably getting just, just, you're focusing on the naked thing. It's not about the naked bit, all right? It's about the intimacy that exists between men and women before everything goes wrong, the intimacy that exists where they can know one another without having to cover up. And that relationship existed not only between the man and his wife, but between men and women and God himself. There was this beautiful, open relationship where they had no fear and no shame. But by the next chapter... By Genesis chapter 3, we see we move from creation to fall. The whole world is broken in an instant when Adam and Eve choose to reject God, to pursue themselves as gods. They disobey him and turn away from him. And the whole world, uh, Paul says in Romans 8, the whole world is subjected to futility. It's broken. It's fractured. And although we can still sit in Lodeder Gorge and see the beauty of God in creation, it is a broken picture. It's a fractured picture. It's pixelated. And so, likewise, creation is fractured and relationships between men and women, between people, are fractured and their relationship with God is fractured. I saw this last night. Man, we... <laughs> Sweetie, we had, a, we had a hard time last night. For some, for some reason, it came to dinner time. We were at the table. The children just went crazy all of a sudden. Complete chaos ensued. And rather than Renee and I banding together to fight off the savages, right, or at least to, to get them into line, we started fighting one another. So many parents are nodding, right? And, and, and it just turned to chaos. Every, it was every man for himself, and it was, so, it was so irretrievable. We were just in so much conflict that there were times where we just looked at each other and said, what, what is happening? Like, it was as if we were just like puppets, and th- the devil himself was pulling the strings. It was just out of control. And I didn't ask Renee if I could tell that story, so it might be the same again tonight, all right? Um, <laughs> We, we made up, and we're, we're all good until what I just said, and we'll see how it goes from there. But, but, but that's what happens after the fall. Relationships, that, now just, just think about this. Imagine that relationship that Adam had with Eve, a relationship where there is perfect communication at all times, no butting heads, no misunderstandings. This is what I think heaven's going to be like. Conversations with people where we don't have to second guess what they're thinking about us or whether they're getting us or whether we should be ashamed of what we just said, whether we got it wrong. None of that exists. There is perfect harmony and unity in the new creation as there was 
in God's initial creation, and all of that is broken in Genesis chapter 3. There's this really terrible moment where after eating of that forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve, the first thing they do is cover themselves up. There no longer exists that perfect intimacy between men and women and between people and God. So that's creation and fall, and we move into redemption. Normally when we get to this part of the story, we go straight to Jesus and talk about how he has redeemed us by his life, death, burial, resurrection. But actually, the story of God's redemption of his people goes way back. In fact, it goes back to the very chapter that we read about the fall. This is how committed God is to our redemption. As soon as the fall happens, he's on it. Because he wasn't surprised by the fall, because he planned for the redemption of his people before he even created anything at all. And so in Genesis 3.15, we have this, what's called, in, if you're a geek, it's called a, the, the Proto-Euangelion, the, 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 the first gospel. It says, he says, as he is cursing the snake, Satan, representative of chaos and brokenness and sin, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What he's painting for us is a picture where someone from uh, Eve's line, someone who was born of a woman, will come and crush the head of the serpent, will come and crush the father of sin, will come and crush all that is broken and sinful in the world. And where Satan will bruise the heel of this man, the man will triumph by crushing his head. The first picture of the gospel that we get right seconds after the fall has happened. And then God, in wanting to fulfill this purpose, to redeem his people, he begins by calling out a people to be his own possession. He calls Abram to be his own. And it's not because Abram's a good guy. In fact, he's kind of pretty, he's as dodgy as you and I are. But God calls him out in unconditional love in order to establish a people through which this promise will be realized. And he makes a succession of covenants with his people, promises that he is not going to abandon them, that he is going to fulfill his purpose in redemption. And so in uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is another little piece of the story, God's story of redemption that isn't going to be contained by this people who he just created, the people of Israel, but it's going to spread out to all peoples, all nations, tribes, and tongues, even to the ends of the earth, to Caroline Spring. This this plan of redemption is something that God is committed to, and so he makes covenant. That is, he makes a binding promise that he will not and cannot break. A promise to redeem his people. In chapter 17 of Genesis, Abram fell down and God said to him, As for me, right, this is me, this is my commitment, this is my covenant with you. 
You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. And so he makes this promise. It's always significant in the Bible when God changes someone's name. He changes his name from Abram to Abraham. He says, listen, you are the father of these nations. I guarantee, based on the covenant that I've made with you, that I will increase your offspring and that those offspring will be the bringers of God's redemptive purposes. The problem is, Abraham's 100 years old, his wife is 90 years old, and so it's hard for them to believe that God's going to be able to do this, right? Because here's the thing, if you're going to be the father of many nations, if you're going to have offspring that outnumber the dust and the stars, then you need sons. That's what you need. You need sons, and preferably lots of them, because stuff happens to sons, Sons tend to hurt themselves, right? If you've got a son, you know, they do stuff to hurt themselves. Sometimes they put themselves in so much danger that they die, and therefore you need a lot of them to ensure that God's promise will be fulfilled. And so God makes this promise in chapter 13. He says, listen, this is what it's going to be like. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. In the face of a very unlikely set of events, 100-year-old, 90-year-old, giving birth to a nation that can't be counted, who are going to carry God's covenant promises through to completion, God says, I'm going to do it. And this is so like God. This is what God does all the time, right? This makes total sense to you if you know anything about God. He's always choosing the unlikely people to achieve his promises. He's always doing that. If you've ever been used of God, you know. He, he used you and you're a moron, right? Why, why does he do this? Why doesn't he just take the cream? Why doesn't he take the most intelligent people of the earth, the most powerful Well, because he wants it to be absolutely crystal clear that it's him who's doing it. It's not your Ivy League education that got the job done. It's him. He's always choosing that which is foolish to shame the wisdom of the wise, as Paul says. But even so, even though God is speaking to them and guaranteeing them by way of covenant that he will see his promises through, it is so unlikely that the only response that Abraham and Sarah can have to this is, is like laughter. So first of all, Abraham in chapter 17 fell face down and he laughed. He said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And then in the next chapter, Sarah says, Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, am, after I am worn out, the, 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 a good translation of that is, um, even though I'm shriveled up, get that image in your mind, all right? Even though I'm shriveled up and my Lord, that is Abraham, is old, will I now have this pleasure? It's so, it's so incomprehensible that God would be able to do this, that God would choose them to achieve his cosmic redemptive purposes, that all they can kind of do is is laugh at the thought. And even when they die, they die without too many guarantees 
that God's going to be able to do what he said he'd do because they die with one son of their line named Isaac and one son isn't a lot to bank on. So the question is, as we stand beside the graves of Abraham and Sarah, the question is, how is God going to achieve his purposes when this is the picture? One son, living in a time that is hostile to life, living in a time where the, uh, where the life expectancy is low. How is God going to achieve his manifest, eternal, cosmic, salvific purposes through one dude? And it's a question that I think we really will, will find, if we're honest, we'll find ourselves asking all throughout our Christian lives, right? Given these circumstances, given this brokenness that we find ourselves in, giving me and the blackness of my heart, given the the trouble and tribulation that we walk through in this life, how is God going to achieve his purposes and his plans in the midst of this mess? You watch the news for half an hour, and that's the question that's going to come to mind. You live in a church family for any length of time, see the mess that is manifest in this place, that's the question you're going to ask. How is God going to achieve his plans and promises when he's working with these materials? We've seen this in our own church, right? In the last couple of weeks, we've seen Sarah, who we love. Sarah Young, married to one of our pastors. Sarah, who serves as director of our music ministry, serves in the youth ministry, serves in every possible facet of the church, right? Gives herself to the ministry of this church, loves Jesus, is 25 years old, and she's got cancer. It's devastating to her and to Jimmy and to us as her family. It's devastating. And the question must be posed, how is God going to work out his plans and purposes for Sarah and for Sarah and Jimmy and for this church in the midst of that level of brokenness? How is he going to take what is broken and make it beautiful? How is he going to take what is chaotic and make it all work? And we're going to see this throughout the book of Exodus. God's people give us every reason to believe that they're not going to be able to achieve God's purposes. I mean, God is good and God is sovereign, but look at the things he's working with. Look at the materials. They're so stuffed. So God takes this one man, Isaac, upon whom everything is dependent, upon whom his cosmic purposes are riding, and he takes him and he makes the Israelites fruitful. So in Genesis Chapter 46, we start linking the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus, and this will give us a little framework for us to get a a run-up into this book. So in 46, it says, Israel set out, and Israel is another name for Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac. 
Israel, Jacob set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. He gives Jacob, the son of Isaac, this promise that it's in Egypt that God is going to secure the nation of Israel by multiplying their number. At this point, there's only about 70 of them. He's going to make them so fruitful so as to secure his covenant promises carried through these people for his redemptive purposes. And he says, you know, Joseph, your son who got sold into slavery, right? That's a, that's a whole other message in itself of God, God's purposes being worked out in the midst of brokenness. Joseph, the son who was sold into slavery, Joseph who ended up in Egypt and then in prison and finally rising to a place of prominence in the government there. It's Joseph who's going to close your eyes. Joseph is going to be there when you die. And it's through your sons that I'm going to establish the people of Israel. And so they move into Egypt, and this is the setting for the first half of the book of Exodus, the nation of Egypt. But there isn't too much to reassure us there. Yes, God again has made promises. We see in verse 26 and 27 of the same chapter, all those who went down to Egypt with Jacob, those who are his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons with the two sons who had already been born to Joseph in Egypt. The members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70, 70 people in a foreign land, in a hostile land. 70 people could so easily be wiped from the face of the earth along with God's covenant promises But God has said, I will make you fruitful. I will make you a nation. As he said to Abram, dust, people of Israel. Stars, people of Israel. And God does increase them. So we come to our passage this morning. If you've got it open, go to Exodus chapter 1 and verse 1 to 7. It says this, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. First part of God's promise fulfilled, I will make you a nation to the point, to the extent that fast forward to chapter 12, and really, for me, all of this series is working up to chapter 12. That's going to be a climax moment for us, for not only for our journey in this book, for us as a church. 
We're going to get there on the day of our ninth birthday in October, and we've got some really big things to share with you. We're all working towards that point where God redeems his people. Redemption is, a, is a, just a term that refers to someone buying someone out of slavery. So we're going to see God very much buying his people, rescuing his people out of slavery by the blood of a lamb and leading them out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And when they go in Exodus 12, the Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600 thousand men on foot besides women and children in an age where the major cities of the world had very few people compared to the cities of today where nations just simply weren't very big Israel in the middle in the midst of its bondage in slavery walks out of that place with 600,000 men not including women and children. You're talking about millions of people walking out together. God has made them fruitful. He has made them so, so numerous. He's fulfilled the first part of his promise, even in the midst of slavery. And so as they walk out, 600,000 men, women, and children, extra conservative estimates by, by scholars put it in the, the mid-2 million range of people. They walk out as God's redeemed people. God has worked his, his, his work of creation, promising redemption even in the midst of the fall, and then redeeming his people here out of slavery as a foretaste of the redemption, the capital R redemption that he will, that he will wrought in the person and work of Jesus. And so we get a glimpse of how God is going to do that in Jesus in the book of Exodus. And again, we're going to work our way up to this point in October, but in, in Exodus chapter 12, uh, verse 12, it says, On that same night, God speaking to his people, I will pass through Egypt, this is the great and terrible tenth plague, and strike down every firstborn of the people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood, this blood of the lamb that they have sacrificed, will be a sign to you on the houses where you are. They're to paint the doorposts, the lintel of their houses with this shed blood of the lamb. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And this picture of redemption, the shed blood of the Lamb, securing the safety, the salvation of God's people, is just a shadow, a foreshadowing of the redemption that God will win for all people. Remember, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And, and that redemption for all people will be wrought and won by the Lamb of God. I love it. In the first chapter of my first book in the Bible, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says, look, he wants everyone, everyone on, in, the, in the universe, look, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul refers to Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5 as Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. The story of Exodus is our story. The redemption of the people of Israel is our redemption. We are part of one long narrative where God is working out his salvific purposes, his purposes of redemption through his people for his glory. And in Exodus, it's going to be the blood of a spotless lamb. And in our our own testimony, it's the blood of a spotless lamb that has redeemed us. Right? That's good. That's good news. So as we look At the book of Exodus, as we journey through it over the coming 22 weeks, I want us to be constantly calling to mind, how does our redemption story fit in with this redemption story? How does this redemption story fit in with our redemption story? How is Jesus the fulfillment of all that we see in God's plans and purposes in the book of Exodus? So we go from creation to fall, to redemption, and then on into restoration. This is the truth that we all yearn for. This is the picture, the vision that God gives us that we're all yearning for as Christians. Paul says that creation itself groans along with us. We're groaning. We're yearning. We can't wait. We're saying, come, Lord Jesus, come and restore all things. Yes, redemption is sweet, but we still live with the consequences of our sin. We still live in the kind of brokenness that pits wife against husband, that pits cancer against our bodies, that produces war and decay. We're yearning for the new creation. We want restoration. This is another one of God's covenant promises that he will recreate all things in perfection as they were in the beginning, only better with no chance of decay or fall or sin or brokenness. That's the restoration we're looking for. And again, the restoration, not only the redemption, but the restoration is won by the blood of a spotless lamb. So that in Revelation chapter 5, this is what John sees. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Verse 11, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your unbreakable promises and plans. We thank you that you have made covenant with your people. You've made a covenant with us to redeem us and to restore us. You are taking all that is broken and making it new. You are turning back on itself all of the consequences of our sin and delivering us into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We thank you and praise you for the spotless Passover lamb, our Lord Jesus, who willingly sacrificed himself for our sin and was raised again for our salvation. And we look with all of your people today, groaning, groaning for our restoration. We pray that you would bring it. So we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Come and make all things new. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.